I mean, that's one of the things I love about soccer. And I, I actually love about all sports is the better you get at it, the more you realize what's, you know, how much better you could be at it. Right. I, I talk about this with my cycling partner that I ride with most of the time. We talk about how, how it's, um, it's like false tops when you're climbing, you know, you always think like, Oh, I'm, I'm cresting. I'm starting, just starting to crest this hill. <laughs> and when I get to the top of it, that's going to be the top. And then right. I'm going to be the the athlete I've always wanted to be. And then you get up to the top and you're like, oh shit, there's, there's three more, there's more levels to this game. Yeah. yeah. And, but that's like, it's disheartening in the moment, but then it's what, it's what really sinks its hooks into you and keeps you going for years and years and years. Hey friends, welcome to this week's episode of the HVMN Podcast. When we look at the world's most popular and greatest athletes in history, you'll notice that many of them are past what we consider the prime age for peak sports performance. An obvious example is NFL quarterback Tom Brady, who's over 40 years old. Despite already winning the Super Bowl five times and being the fifth oldest player in the game, Tom has shown no signs of slowing down, is still very clearly improving upon his game and breaking records. So how can one maintain or achieve such elite performance in the face of natural aging? This was a question that drove Jeff Berkovici, the San Francisco Bureau Chief of Inc. Magazine and a serious amateur athlete in his own right, on a quest to find the answer. After talking to a dozen of top players, coaches, and sports scientists like Brady, Serena Williams, Carly Lloyd, he laid out all his learnings in his recent book, Play On, The New Science of Elite Performance at Any Age. Jeff and I discuss the common misconceptions of famous athletes in their training. We talk about his personal sports journey and how he personally recovered after suffering a serious injury. And we also explore the concept of immortality and anti-aging. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do as well. As always, please feel free to send me a note or questions at podcast at hvmn.com. iTunes reviews are also appreciated. And remember that you'll score a free Sprint Mini in the process. Without further ado, let's get started. Jeff, great to have you on the program. Usually you're the one interviewing me, so it's great to have the hot seat turnaround for this time. It may be great. I don't know. Maybe it depends <laughs> on what your questions are. <laughs> well, I would say that you're probably one of the unique reporters that covers the intersection between human performance and technology. Recently published, great book, Play On. And I think there's like a lot of directions to riff off here, but perhaps given our audience's interest in nutrition and diet protocols. There's obviously a number of sections talking about that. Bone broth, Tom Brady's kind of like non-nightshade diet. What are some of the interesting things that you've discovered over the last few years around diets? Obviously in our community, people are very much interested in intermittent fasting, ketogenic diets. How do you synthesize all this noise? Nutrition was a really interesting area to research in part because there are so many myths around it. Like there are so many athletes out there who are practicing one diet or another that they fervently believe is contributing to their performance. But when you talk to the scientists, there's a pretty strong consensus that the more extreme an intervention is or the more specific an intervention is, the less probably clinically valid it, it seems to be, you know, the less data there is behind it. So something like Tom Brady's diet, which gets a huge amount of attention because, you know, he's the best player in the biggest sport in America. If you ever talk to a nutritionist about it, they'll say, it's a good diet. It's a healthy diet for you to eat because, you know, he eats a ton of like vegetables and whole grains and, you know, lean meats. But 
all the weird specific stuff about it that makes it so much fun to talk about is like woo-woo science. Like there's there's nothing there. Yeah. I'm curious in terms of anti-nightshade, which is like what, like tomatoes and what are Yeah, tomatoes, potatoes. Um, <laughs> I actually do not know what, that's a good question. What yeah. are the nightshades? I think peppers. I think some, some okay. peppers are nightshades too, right? Yeah. So like bone broth seemed to be something that like you thought was actually legitimate. Yes, absolutely. So yeah. bone broth is just basically collagen. I mean, there's, right. there's a, a lot of data around collagen supplementation showing that it's really helpful for basically tendon repairs, which means both it helps your tendons repair faster from an injury, but it also helps them repair from kind of micro injuries that you would suffer when you're quote unquote suffer in the course of training. Right. So, you know, it helps your tendon basically create new crosslinks in the tissue matrix that makes it stiffer and more kind of responsive to returning energy when you're doing something like running. Yeah. So collagen supplementation for exercise has been pretty well documented. And that's something that I think a lot of people heard about for the first time because of Kobe Bryant and his like bone broth when he got into his mid-30s. He started drinking bone broth. I think it was before every game and he would when he was on the road traveling with the Lakers, he had to, he had like an advanced person who would go to every hotel and show them how to make bone right. broth exactly uh, the right way for him. That's an interesting anecdote, yeah. So it's the kind of thing that sounds so weird that it sounds like it's going to be pseudoscience, but it totally checks out. Yeah. Whereas on the other hand, the thing where Tom Brady doesn't eat any nightshades and he doesn't eat any strawberries, it seems to be not a good thing to do because- Or it just know, seems arbitrary, I think is like perhaps one way to look at it. I mean, I don't think there's any data one way or the other you kind of just chose random food groups to like not intake. Yeah, they're not that, ra- I mean, there are a lot of <laughs> diets that that say, you know, nightshades are pro-inflammatory, various other foods are pro-inflammatory. And that's something where there's a ton of research going on, but right now there's not a connection between inflammation and aging and performance. It's not as simple as someone like Alex Guerrero, who's Tom Brady's right. health guru, you know, as he is, putting forth. Like the idea that like, if you have less inflammation in your body, you're going to feel better and perform better. And, you know, therefore you should do everything you can to tamp down your body's inflammation. That is very tenuous. Right. I mean, I think a couple of the themes that were in your book that rings true in our experience in our community and our customers is that periodization, cycling in and out of different types of exercise, but also I think nutrition also applies in this periodization context is important. And then like personalization against your genetics. I mean, I think those two seem to be the confounding factors where everyone has like their holy war with, you know, carbs are evil or fats are evil. And I think like people are just missing, I think like the real context that people need to personalize toward their school and their towards their genetics. Like, what do you think of that concept? I think you hit the nail on the head, and that's where it gets really tricky to say anything definitive or prescriptive around nutrition, because absolutely, it seems like we all process foods or nutrients in somewhat different ways. So when I say something like Tom Brady's diet doesn't have any science behind it, that is true, but it's also entirely possible that in 20 years, we'll have the data in to say, oh, it turns out this was actually the perfect diet for Tom Brady's body. Right. That, like he truly does like respond to nightshades in this right. suboptimal way. And like strawberries actually did cause him to have extra fatigue and whatever. We just don't know that now. So, I mean, this is one of the things that got me interested, the topic in sports in the first place, in the topic of athletes and aging, because elite athletes in general have a very different approach to their health than the rest of us do. You know, for the vast majority of us, 
health is basically public health. You know, it's population health. We're told things that are true for, you know, 95% of people. So it's probably true for us. And that's good enough. Elite athletes, that's not good enough for them. But, you know, their bodies are worth so much. Their performance is worth so much to their teams. So they actually are getting much more personalized nutrition advice, much more personalized surgical advice. They don't kind of get these rule of thumb answers that the rest of us get. So I think everything in sports science is sort of happening first at the level of elite athletes and then trickling down to the rest of us. So we're seeing that with nutrition now, maybe in a somewhat unscientific, you know, shotgun way. But I do think over time, we are all probably going to get more personalized nutritional and health recommendations that are based on our genetics or our epigenetics or, you know, other in other ways targeted to yeah, us. I, I 100% agree with that. I mean, I, I think you can just look at the interest in, in your book, but also in the growth of our community. I think the audience listening is interested in exactly that. Like, how do I perform better? Not on the population level, because that's just an average of all of human population. It's probably, and in most studies, for better or for worse, are done on like college age predominantly Caucasian men, right? Like that's like literally the basis of most clinical studies. So does it have application to a black, you know, 60 year old woman? Like maybe, maybe not. And I think that's where the room for personalization is, I think, capturing a lot of attention and interest. I'm curious, what was your favorite, you know, anecdotes from doing this book? I mean, me just reading it, it just seemed like there's a lot of like fun adventures that you were just like playing around with, perhaps, you know, just trying to figure out the, like the wine bath, you know, <laughs> and like that being shut down so you couldn't do the wine bath. Or um, I thought the passage with Eric Potterat, who was the head psychologist for Naval Special Warfare, was really interesting. I've actually spoken to him, I guess, in a different context. But I mean, I thought his passage around the, like the psychological approach of slow is smooth, smooth is fast, you know, resonated with me a lot. What were some of the funnest people you met? You know, what were some fun anecdotes and what has really stuck and resonated in terms of feedback or advice? Yeah, Eric Potter, so he was the first head psychologist for the Navy SEALs, right? Mm -hmm. And talking to him was really cool because he is just so obviously the real thing. You know, when when you talk to him, he has this very quiet, magnetic manner where you're like, wow, I can see why the world's greatest warriors will listen to you. Yeah. And hearing someone whose insights and performance are drawn from something that's life or death. There's a lot of people out there giving a lot of performance advice that is mm, questionable. Right. <laughs> and they, you know, you're like, would you really lay your own life on the line with that? But, you know, he's he's talking to people who have done it. So that was a really neat experience. God, there were so many. I mean, I thought for me, getting to hang out with Meb Kofleski while he trained and riding around in the van with Bob Larson. So Meb is retired from competitive running now, but he was basically the the top American male marathoner for many years. First American to win the Boston Marathon in decades. You know, part of this kind of resurgence of American distance running, which had really fallen off for a long time. And Bob and Meb both played a huge part in it coming back. So that was just awesome to ride in the van with Bob. You know, Meb was in the final stage of training for the New York Marathon and hear all of these tales from somebody who probably had more stories from American running than than anyone else. And another just great thing for me, the best reporting trip I did was going up to Victoria in British Columbia and hanging out with this guy, Trent Stellingworth, who is a Canadian sports scientist. And his wife, Hilary Stellingworth, is a middle distance runner who was training at the time for Rio. Trent is amazing. And he loves his job and what he does so much. And he's one of those people who is so smart and just so eager to communicate 
to have other people understand why he loves what he does as much as he does. Yeah. So I just learned in three days, it was like, you know, a master class. Yeah. It kind of relates to an audience question here. So Frank asks, after talking to a number of top athletes, what is a common misconception that people have of famous athletes? That's a great question. I have a, my own perspective here, but curious to hear your answer. I think a really common misperception that struck me during my reporting is that there's this idea about how they do their jobs, which is that it's all about this kind of intensity. I mean, I, I think of like Gatorade commercials or Nike commercials where you watch them training and it's all like them screaming at each other like, yeah, do one more, right. you know, and like sweat is flying off them. But when you wa actually watch them training, it's very focused. A lot of the emphasis in their training is on precision rather than on sort of all out. I mean, there is a place for all out intensity, but it's really a job for them. And they approach it in a very professional way, or at least the ones who are really kind of smart and forward thinking, approach it in this very precise, dialed in, deep focused way that to me was just at odds with like how sports is marketed to us. Right. I would add to that in the sense that I think to cut it at that highest level, you just have genetic talents. And sometimes they don't have that much discipline. Like you talk to a lot of NFL teams, it's like half the guys are elite specimens and they're like super serious about their craft, like they're the samurai of their craft. But the other half are like eating Skittles and candy half the time. And we're just like trying to get them to like a normal, reasonable diet. And I think that the conception is that these are ultra disciplined warriors in their practice. It's surprising that sometimes they can get away with just being super talented. And I think that's like a misconception that at least is something that has stuck with me. Yeah. You know who said that to me? Uh, John Wellborn. He was an NFL lineman for like 10 years. Now yeah. he runs a company called Power Athlete. And he said that the fittest guys that he played with in the NFL never worked out. He said they just literally didn't have to work out. Right. <laughs> That's yeah, crazy. It's like, I think it's like literally like some people are just not fair, right? Like I think it's like if you're just Einstein or you're just a super genius, it's like, how do you get super smart? Like, I don't know. He probably doesn't know. He just like, I just can see math equations. But it's all over the place too, yeah. because, you know, Colin Kaepernick, who was at, was training at one of the, the performance centers that I went to for some of my reporting. I mean, you look at him and like his muscles have muscles. Right. He's one of those guys. But then he also probably did work out more than anybody who was on the 49ers. Right. I mean, when I was there, like the coach specifically told everyone, the NFL, their NFL strength coach was like, everybody go. I don't want to see you in the facility for the rest of the day. Like they had done like an hour, very focused, intense workout in the morning. And he was like, your job for the rest of the day is to recover. Yeah. And Kaepernick went right to the gym and spent four hours just like lifting every piece of metal in the entire gym. He probably has those genetic gifts and, and the he's ethic. a freak, uh, has a freakish work ethic too. And I think that's where you get like truly the top of the top. And I think that also brings to, I think one of the more important threads in the book that at least resonated with me was the notion that the people that I think end up being the greatest seem to just have a longevity to them. And it seems that like the mental capacity for the game or their endeavor increases linearly while the body potentially like starts breaking down. But the people that can really be like the top of the top, like Tom Brady, Serena Williams, they basically can maintain the, the physical aspect longer than most. And I think that that reminds me of like, how do you keep having that childlike curiosity towards your, our own craft? Because I feel like in a lot of people's everyday lives, they get jaded or blasé about like their everyday existence. So I think just like getting inspired on how these elite athletes are able to find newness and freshness in their sort of day-to-day -day routine was inspiring for me. 
is, was that a pattern that you that you that you thought that, that resonated? I sound like you know some like the, the hockey guy that like would just love the game, you know some of these like interesting characters that you profiled. I think that is absolutely a pattern, and what you're seeing there is a number of feedback loops that result in a phenomenon where the best players play the longest. I mean, partly that's because you know they have the opportunity to play the longest. Everybody wants to keep paying them to do what they right. do, but there's also two mechanisms really jump out at me, one of which is what you just alluded to, which is their ability to sustain that sense of joy and and love of what they do. That was something that I heard from every sports psychologist that I talked to. You know, when I said, what makes players who have the longest careers different from everybody else? It really is that they love the game. They have more of a sense of joy uh, than anyone else. John McEnroe was talking about Roger Federer. He said, he loves the game more than anyone else I've ever met. And John McEnroe has met every single top tennis yeah. player of the last 40 years. So when he says that, that like really carries weight. I mean, you yeah. think it, like it's almost too perfect that the best tennis player of all time is also the guy who literally loves tennis more than anyone in all time. <laughs> but that's not a coincidence. Right. Like, that's how it works. Right. Tom Brady, after he won his Super Bowl, he said, there's two things that I love to do in life. Play football and watch football. You know, he's like, like <laughs> play football and prepare to play football. Okay. Yeah. Like he's talking about like like reading playbooks and yeah. sitting in classrooms and you know, getting people to stretch his body out. Like he loves that. You know, yeah. that sense of intrinsic motivation is something that it's not that common in athletes because these are people who have to approach a game like it's a job. So they need to be able to shut off that part of the brain that says, like, okay, this is just about fun and being silly and it's okay to lose. Right. Like they can shut that off, but then they can also selectively turn it back on or they can have both of those programs running in parallel. Right. It's a fairly unique psychology and there's not that many people who have it. Have you tried to apply that to your personal life? Because I think that kind of inspired me to look at doing the podcast or running the business. Like how do you just maintain that excitement of the craft? Like have you just like looked at writing or reporting or the endeavors that you do. And they're like, I'm going to try to brainwash myself to think that like, this is the greatest thing possible. Have you tried to like reverse psychology yourself into the mental state? That's a great question. And the answer is, I think that it's easier for me to do that than it is for people like Federer and Brady. Because for me and for most people, I haven't reached the pinnacle of what I do. I can constantly challenge myself with new things. I mean, reading, writing this book was part of that. You know, I said, okay, I'm at this phase where I'm writing long-form magazine features, and I feel like I've gotten pretty good at it, and I want a new challenge to keep my brain feeling, you know, young and stimulated. And, you know, I personally like my job best when I feel like I'm in about, st- when I'm in water, that's about six inches deeper than I am tall. And I'm always having to fight just a little bit to like keep my head above the surface. So writing this book allowed me to do that. And, you know, now I've written one book and I'm like, okay, I want to write another one because I feel like I can do it better next time. How do you do that when you're Roger Federer and you've won more Grand Slam tournaments than anyone in history? But the answer is he does it because he's actually improved. I mean, when you look at him, his backhand is better than it's ever been. It's gotten noticeably better in the last few years. You know, he developed this new shot called the saber that was like a totally new technique in tennis that nobody was doing. So I guess that is a useful template to follow if I ever find myself in danger of becoming too good <laughs> at what I do. But for now, it's really just being aware of, of where I'm weak and where I can learn new things and, and using that to keep myself yeah. dialed in. I want to move to another audience question here. Sean Giggins asks, who is your favorite athlete? Like, period. And and why? I mean, do you have an answer? Is there a great answer there? (laughs) It probably would have to be Federer because 
combination of I love tennis. I've watched all of his great matches like live over the years. He had this phase of his career where he was like a little too perfect and it was boring. But since he has gotten into his mid 30s and, you know, he had his first injury and you saw his career seemingly start to tail off a little bit. And then he had this resurgence. I feel like everybody who has found themselves on the other side of 30 and like thinking like, oh, is that it for me? Like, am I now just destined to be like a worse version of myself (laughs) physically every year for the rest of my life? We're just all rooting for him. He's become so like inspirational and easy to connect to emotionally. And also his tennis is just, are you a tennis fan? I grew up playing tennis. I was just going to add that in my high school tennis court, there's Pete Sampras's high school championships. In oh, Southern right. California, it's a hotbed for tennis, like Lindsay Davenport. I think I remember seeing like Sharapova like playing when she was like just coming up into the professional ranks. So I remember when I was in middle school, my tennis coach was saying, look out for Federer. He's like such a beautiful, elegant player. He's going to be like num- number one. Oh, wow. That's so crazy. I remember, I remember that conversation like on the tennis court in Torrance. And it's true. Like he's a very elegant tennis player. I think especially if you see adults pick it up. Like you didn't grow up playing tennis. Like people's strokes are very awkward or, or they, they look goofy, but. Yeah, it's beautiful uh, to watch. He, it's he's like, like watching very someone do calligraphy. Yeah. yeah, it's so it's so soothing to watch him play. I mean, there's there's different players that that I love for different reasons. And one of the reasons that I love tennis is because I love tennis fans. I feel like uh, tennis huh. fans are so sophisticated about, you know, in every other sport you have like your team that you root for right. and that's who you root for. And you sort of, uh, you know, people are are like, brutes. Right. But tennis fans are so sophisticated the way they watch a tournament <laughs> and the way their allegiances change over the course of a tournament or even over the course of a match. Right. And they will really get behind someone just because like they're playing beautiful tennis that day. So Federer, I feel like a lot of people love watching him just because he's beautiful. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. So I think you consider yourself like a serious amateur athlete. Would that be the right way to put, you know, your consideration there? But I'm curious, how did you get so interested in sports and in human performance? Like, what's your personal trajectory here? I guess serious amateur athlete. I think I would have to embrace that at this point. I think that would surprise anyone who knew me 10 years ago. But it's definitely become a pretty huge part of my life. I grew up playing as much sports as every other vaguely sporty kid. Well, into high school. Um, did kind of everything and not very well. In my 20s, I sort of was like a weekend warrior type person, you know, didn't do anything very seriously. But then in my early 30s, I got into playing soccer, which I wasn't good at, had had played as a kid, never really had any talent for, but I just got into playing with, it, with this uh, adult rec league in Brooklyn and just got obsessed with it. Like immediately I was like, oh, this is what I need to be doing with all my free time. <laughs> And I would go to like soccer classes on the, I, I'd like sign up for soccer clinics on the weekend. Just clicked. To work on I mean, touch. that's, that's, that's pretty hardcore to go from like, not really just, I'm going to take classes. I'm going to get like tutored in soccer. Yeah. It kind of happened like that. It was one of those things where, you know, I like the six inches of water too deep yeah. where I felt like, oh, I can almost get this, you know, like I have the, you know, if I just get a little more fit and I just work on it, always felt like it was just eluding me a little bit. Yeah. And it still does. And I think it does. I mean, that's one of the things I love about soccer. And I, I actually love about all sports is the better you get at it, the more you realize how much better you could be at it. Right. I, I talk about this with my cycling partner that I ride with most of the time. We talk about how it's like false tops when you're climbing. You know, you always think like, 
oh, I'm, I'm cresting. I'm starting, just starting to crest this hill. <laughs> and when I get to the top of it, that's going to be the top. And then right. I'm going to be the athlete I've always wanted to be. And then you get up to the top and you're like, oh shit, there's, there's three more, there's more levels to this game. Yeah. yeah. And, but that's like, it's disheartening in the moment, but then it's what really sinks its hooks into you and keeps you going for years and years and years. So playing soccer, it's kind of how I rediscovered myself as an athlete, as an adult. But then the injuries that I had and the limitations that I ran up against when I tried to go basically from zero to 100 in the course of a year is how I got really interested in basically the age part of it. Yeah, that's actually a great segue to another question from Laura Daly. She actually asks, what did you learn about yourself? I mean, I don't know if she actually knew you had some injuries, but it's actually really relevant. What did you learn about yourself when you suffer a serious injury that puts you out of the game for a while? Oh, that's such a great question. For me, it was about six months of rehab before I was cleared to do whatever I wanted. And, it, and then it was probably- well, I guess zoom out for a context. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, mean, yeah, I don't absolutely. even know if she knew that you had a serious injury, but perhaps she was just uh, just asking generally, but I think it applies to yourself, obviously. Yeah, I've been playing soccer for a couple of years and, I, and you know, my back had gone out of me a few times. And then after one game, it just went out spectacularly on, you know, where I had like the lightning bolts going down my legs and okay. I was on the floor and I had to crawl to the phone <laughs> to call someone. And it, it turned out- like I, you got slide tackled or just like, you were just running around and just like, whoa, you just tweaked your back. It was like, it tightened up on me after the game. And then I got home and I picked up a bag of groceries and that was actually when I crumpled to the floor and couldn't get up. And I had an MRI and they said, you know, they, they literally came running after me out to the street and said, don't leave. You have to get surgery right away. Whoa. Uh, because I had, I had herniated two discs so massively that um, they were pressing, they were completely surrounding the nerves to my legs. And they said, you know, if you wait longer than 48 hours to get surgery, you'll probably have permanent paralysis and you know, other symptoms. So I had this emergency surgery and I was, my body was pretty messed up for a while afterwards. And it was a lot of rehab before I could really resume full activities. And it's interesting because what I learned about myself was, it was one of those experiences in life that people go through where you get totally broken down and then you have to build back up from nothing. And I feel like those experiences are the ones where you really discover who you are, you know, because the life that you build, it doesn't happen by happenstance or inertia or anything. You're really saying like, okay, these are the things that matter to me in my life and I'm going to work really hard to get them back. And I'm going to show myself that I have the ability to work really hard to get them back because, you know, it's not just that I was like lucky or whatever. So I kind of cherish that experience. And I have a hunch that a lot of people who have been through similar experiences feel the same way about it. Yeah. I think it's almost free in some sense where you get to recraft your own narrative in, in some sense. I wonder if in your reporting on elite athletes, I can imagine this being soul crushing for some, you know, I think, you know, some segment of the people that have a debilitating injury, just I'm done, I can't, I can't come back. Or do that they segment towards people that, you know, more spin it positively. Like, can I come back? I wanna come back. I'm gonna just do everything 110% to come back. I would guess it's the latter. I mean, you know, the research on happiness, I mean, you're probably familiar with the studies basically on, on happiness being a set point phenomenon and that people who, for instance, have accidents that leave them paraplegic afterwards tend to report the same self-reported levels of happiness like right. a year out. I mean, it doesn't happen right away, right. but like if they talk to them like a year after or two years after, they basically say that they're about as happy as they were beforehand. Right. So I would be really interested in, in reading the actual data on yeah. this, but I would guess with elite athletes that they probably are the type to treat it as a challenge rather than as something that they would be devastated by. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, it probably depends on the person. So you can you also hear. I mean, this is more applied to the military case, but like people that have just you know they get their legs blown up or something, they really lose a sense of identity. Mm. But I imagine in a sport use case, you're not you know necessarily getting to that level of like changing your identity. Because I guess like in terms of like a, like a normal person or like a casual athlete, you don't have your identity tied towards elite performance, but perhaps you take that away from an elite athlete. Do you like disrupt like their sense of self? So it that, might hit them even harder. That's a really good point. There's a lot of sports psychology that focuses on identity and kind of how it's beneficial, but also not beneficial to construct your identity around sports. And at the same time, I also want to say that in those first few weeks after I hurt my back, and I thought that probably I would never play soccer again, I was depressed. I felt a pretty profound depression around that. And that's just as somebody who played soccer three times a week. So I can't imagine if if it was your career and it was actually over, you know, over, over because of an injury. Boy, yeah, that must be pretty devastating. I think one of the biggest topics that we've seen in the sporting community is recovery. I think this notion of recovery, and I think you cover it nicely in, in the book here, is that I think for like the longest period of time, you had like basically amateur gentlemen sportsmen because like there's no money in, in professional sports. And I think people are just like, we're going hard, 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 hard. And like really within the last, I would say 10 years or so, people are really focused on recovery now. You know, what in your experience has been interesting? I mean, just from like a personal perspective on how you rehabilitated and came back into, I mean, you can clearly cycle and and you're playing soccer now again? Right now I'm not, but basically just because I cycling takes up too much of my time. But like you're basically back to like close to norm or better than before, hopefully. I'm just curious in terms of like the reporting, your experience, what has been some of the most interesting developments in recovery? I think that what you said, that 10-year time frame is about right. It's only been about 10 or 15 years that it has been treated as an equal leg on the stool to training and training and nutrition. That's really seen as now that those are the three pillars of a performance program. Whereas I think that if you look 20 years ago, it was more like training, nutrition, and then over here in the corner is like, oh, this thing also, there's recovery. You might right. want to do some of that too. I think a lot of what's driving it is uh, just a more sophisticated understanding of fatigue, like more sophisticated understanding of the importance of periodization and you know building enough kind of rest and downtime into a program, which is something that we've seen in American sports. You know, probably the most visible example of that to any kind of American sports fan would be like what we've seen in the NBA, where you know now every team rests healthy players yeah. during the season. And it's something that's so obviously such conventional wisdom now that unless you were also watching basketball 20 years ago, you probably wouldn't know that like that was considered a crazy off the wall thing to do. You're resting your healthy players during the season. And like, you know, Greg Popovich would get fined for doing it. They would blast him on ESPN. But that basically he was the one who figured out that like, oh, periodization is something you can do in team sports as well. It doesn't just have to be something that's part of a marathon training plan. As athletes in every sport and coaches in every sport have gotten smarter about that, they've realized like, oh, now we have all these blank spaces in our program that we could be filling with something else. Yeah. So recovery has kind of rushed into that vacuum in, in ways that have been both, I would say, really like necessary and, and helpful and beneficial, and also in ways that are probably more marketing-driven than science-driven yeah. that way. Yeah. I was actually going to ask about that. I mean, like you tried a bunch of cutting-edge stuff. Were there some clear highlights that were like completely misguided and like complete BS? Like, what were the, some of the lowlights or things that you thought were just completely crazy? 
You know, that's the thing about about recovery is that you can't really over-recover. They'll say, if you do like cryotherapy every day, you know, you do it three times a day, sure. Hypothetically, it could tamp down your inflammation to the point that you're not getting the training adaptation that you you want to get. You're not getting the full benefit of your training because, you know, your body is just immediately suppressing its own inflammation cycle. Right. But outside of that, if you love the feeling of being in a cryo chamber, then sure, do it all you want. I think it's given, especially like given how much it costs to do, I think it's pretty silly. <laughs> Put it that the way. The wine bath is probably pretty silly. The wine bath. I mean, even Amari Stoudemire. <laughs> so I talked So Amari Stoudemire told me that he does this vino therapy, it's called, where yeah. you bathe in hot red wine. And when yeah. he was playing for the Knicks, there, you know, there's one vino therapy place in the country, which is in Tribeca. And so when he was playing for the Knicks, he would go there after every home game and yeah. take this wine bath. And But even when I asked him about it, I was like, so you do this thing, it costs like $400 every time you do it. So what does it do for you? And he's like, oh, you know, it's just like a bath. Feels good. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm in the NBA. I can't burn my money. <laughs> yeah. So. And, and I think, you know, because we're in Silicon Valley, I feel like we're, you see some of the, I guess you would say like similar behavior with, I guess, you know, some of the characters of Silicon Valley obsessed with longevity and anti-aging. It seems to be like there's like similar approaches or investigations around these cutting edge techniques. Did that inform your reporting? Like, did you see parallels there? Because I know that in one of the ending sections of the book, you talked about Peter Thiel and his parabiosis. How do you see these threads coming together? I mean, clearly there's some, perhaps some relationship around optimization on the sports perspective and optimization in, I guess, cognition or productivity or longevity. Yeah, absolutely. It informed my reporting. I mean, it, it was in my mind all the time. And a lot of the sports tech companies, I mean, companies like like Human, for yeah. instance, that that I was keeping track of what they do, and you know, in some cases, reporting on them in the book, were all here. I mean, this this is definitely where the frontier of human performance, and you know, they don't use the word biohacking very much in sports, but that's right. basically what these athletes are doing. You know, they're yeah. biohacking. So the question exactly is. What? <laughs> well, I guess it's like, I'm just curious to hear the parallels, like your, your thoughts on the parallels. It seems like like in the sporting world, clearly an optimization focus on physical performance. And in Silicon Valley, there seems to be a growing thread around biohackers for longevity or cognition. Do you see these be related endeavors, parallel endeavors, somewhat um, overlapping endeavors? They're definitely related endeavors. I mean, one big difference it has to do, I would say, with time which is that I think a lot of the stuff that athletes do that's you know more fringy or might have some benefit but the benefit is like probably pretty marginal is basically because you can only train so much you know you can't hit the gym 60 hours a week so they have a lot of downtime when you know an athlete like a Colin Kaepernick who who does have that incredibly powerful desire to to do everything in his power to make himself better He's got a lot of extra time. I mean, I, I'm not singling out Colin Kaepernick on purpose here. I don't know if he does any really weird stuff, but he's got a lot of extra time in his hands. Tom Brady has a lot of time on his hands when he's not sitting in a classroom or he's not in a gym right. to pursue things that, you know, maybe they make a 0.1% difference to his ability to compete. But he's like, yeah, hell, I'm going to do that. Why not? Whereas I feel like in Silicon Valley, time is the thing that everybody feels like they need more of. And a lot of this biohacking stuff is, in, is even about finding more time in the day, whether it's 
like you a know, Tim Ferriss thing, like you know, run your business in like five minutes or whatever, like like that kind of yeah, like the productivity hacking. Yeah, or even like um, so Phil Wagner, uh, who runs Sparta Science right. down in in Menlo Park, uh, you know, one of these performance centers that. They use motion. They use uh, not sorry. They use force plates to measure athletes' movements uh, to measure athletes the forces they put into the ground when they jump, and then they analyze it and supposedly can um, identify different movement patterns that they can retrain to help them either avoid injuries or you know increase their performance. So he is a former semi-pro rugby player. You know, very super fit guy, still very fit, and he also has three kids and. Basically, the way he manages to do a startup and do all of these other things is that he sleeps four hours a night. <laughs> and he, you know, the way that he sleeps four hours a night, according to Phil, is he uses coherence training to synchronize his. You probably know more about this than I like do. Synchronizing his sleep, like or, yeah, I remember reading about that. Yeah, basically yeah. to basically to get himself like right into deep sleep, and then when he right. wakes up in the morning, he spends the first few hours in the morning sitting in red lights, which supposedly stimulates increases right. your mitochondrial output. Right. So because of this, he says he's basically able to sleep four hours a night instead of eight hours a night and feel exactly the same. Oh, he also uses intermittent fasting okay. to control his energy levels. He said especially when he's traveling. Uh, and on different time zones. But that's because he doesn't have enough hours in the day. Right. You know? So that seems like a pretty big difference, right? Yeah, I, I don't know if I believe him. I mean, I, that would be great if we could actually just sleep for four hours a day. Like, that would be great for productivity and for everyone. Yeah. Well, um, maybe once we're able to, you know, examine his genetics. His and genetics, right? Genetics, like, there, there's apparently like that 1% of people that only need like a four-hour amount of sleep, apparently. There are just like genetics, I guess, uh, phenotypes of people. That would be really funny if yeah. that if he's actually one of those people and he just like bought this whole lighting system <laughs> for his bedroom for nothing. Yeah. So I know you have like some takeaways at the end of the book, but any highlights that have really stuck to in terms of takeaways that you have applied to your personal life? Or even just, you know, just putting it back out to the audience, like what has been the biggest, highest delta things that you've just added to your life that are impactful? The biggest one I would say is, you know, a big part of the reason that I kept getting hurt when I was trying to become a, a great soccer player at 35 is I just had a really unsophisticated approach to training. I thought like, okay, I need to be more fit. So I need to play more and I need to, you know, run more and work out more. And it was just this kind of like more is more thing. So really understanding there's no such thing as fitness without freshness was something that for me has changed the way that I think about everything. I really think about periodizing now for anything that I want to do, not just playing soccer or not just uh, cycling, but even something like writing a book or, gosh, <laughs> I don't yeah. know, being on this podcast. Like, yeah. I'm constantly now thinking in terms of those cycles of building up and recovery afterwards. And it's just a really useful concept. I mean, you talked about periodizing yeah. for nutrition before, yeah. and that's something that's now starting to catch on. This idea that like, you know, anything you do, periodizing for for heat exposure, periodizing for sleep. Right. It's one of those things like the matrix. Like once you internalize that idea, you see opportunities to do it everywhere in your yeah. life. I think that will be a, like a well-accepted concept in the coming years. I think that will be a big thing across all pursuits. I think you can imagine that being applied towards business functions as well. I mean, people already kind of do in Silicon Valley, like sprints and waterfall, you know, all the sort of agile development techniques. So I think people already are doing periodization, but can you make it a little bit more sophisticated perhaps? I think that seems to be a direction that seems to be promising. You know, there were a bunch of concepts like that in the book that are so, once you understand them, they're so self-evident yeah. that it almost becomes 
hard to imagine that there was a world that was so backwards yeah. about it and that world existed as recently as it did. Yeah. You know, it's almost like you're trying to explain to someone like why it's good to breathe. <laughs> yeah. So what are interesting topics that you're looking forward to thinking about next? I mean, we had a recent conversation around stoicism, you know, what's percolating in your mind? What would book two be about? If there's any previews on that, what's interesting in terms of your day-to-day -day reporting What's going on in Jeff Berkovich's brain right I'm, now? I'm definitely, so the last chapter of the book is the one where I talk about longevity and life yeah. extension. And that's definitely a topic that I have great, great interest in, partly because I have so much ambivalence around it. And I generally think that ambivalence is a good tool as a journalist. You know, it's like a splinter in your mind. Right. It keeps you thinking about something. What are the tensions? Like, I, I'm actually curious about, you know, t diving into this topic. Like, what is the ambivalence of, about like, do you not want to live forever? Do you like? I don't think I do want to live forever. I don't. I don't think I do want to live forever. We should have an audience poll. Like, how many percent of the HVMN podcast listeners want to live forever? But it's not just that I don't especially want to live forever. But it's that when I talk to people who do want to live forever about why they want to live forever, I often have trouble identifying with it, and then I also have trouble articulating why I have trouble identifying with it. You know, <laughs> like often people will, will put it in very common sense terms, like. You know, like I just like being alive and I want yeah. to do more of it. Or, you know, I, I have things that I want to do and I feel like I can do do them more effectively if I have, you know, 500 years that I can work on the same project. Right. And I don't know, I just, whenever I have one of these conversations, my brain spends a long time afterwards thinking like, why did that bother you? Or like, what's the... Is it because like they seem selfish or self-absorbed? Or it's... like arrogant or... Uh... You know, no. Okay. I mean, so, yes, sometimes, okay. sometimes yes. Yeah. The, the answer is sometimes yes, and sometimes no. I mean, I think that when it's just someone who seems selfish, that's less interesting, and that's right. kind of easy for your brain to put its finger on and, right. and move on. It's more when it's somebody who genuinely, I feel like I really see eye to eye with, that then afterwards I'm thinking like, what's the missing puzzle piece here that I'm not understanding? Right. Like, I think that there are a lot of angles to understand immortality from, or, you know, extreme life, life, extension through. And it's something that is new enough that as an actual prospect, that I don't think that we've examined it through all of these angles. Like, right. you know, we have thousands and thousands of years of human thinking in religious traditions, philosophical traditions, ethical traditions that are all grounded in the understanding that we're, we're going to die. Yeah. If we're not going to die, like all of that stuff is suddenly up in the air. Right. I mean, it is like just like a meaty discussion topic. I mean, I think from my personal perspective, it just seems like an optionality opportunity, right? Like you can always, I guess, kill yourself. So, but like, can you like have an option, like live longer and to get more time? It just seems like, like a status quo kind of a thing. It's like instead of default, like you're going to die, like default on, yeah. like why not just like flip the default bit? Like there's a one way to think about it, at least from, you know, a very baseline way of I think about it. Well, but then, okay, so there were a whole bunch of assumptions built into what you just said okay. that aren't necessarily true. Like you're talking about it as though the person that continues to be alive, you know, into the distant future is A, you. Sure. And B, a person, you know, which a lot of people would disagree with both of those things. I mean, you know, I talked to Sam Altman about this the other day. And he has this idea that, you know, of the merge, you know, this merge right. that that is already underway. You know, we're already starting to merge with our devices and that's basically going to become 
you know, going the future to future humanity, right? Radically okay. accelerate. We're right. gonna, you know, the singularity is going to happen. Right. You know, he didn't invent that idea, but he's a believer in some form of it. He's like, I actually think that this is going to happen in the next couple decades, right. and I totally have no idea how I feel about it. Like, if you ask me if it's a good thing or or not, like, I can't answer that right now. Like, that's really interesting. Yeah, I could think about you know, I could talk about that all day. But you have to put that in quotes. Do yeah. you want to live forever? <laughs> every part of it yeah well i think just take like the naive question i think i would say that most people would want that optionality but like i think you open up that can of worms like is you uploaded into a computer into the cloud is that still you or like is that just a conscious stream that mimics you really well right like that's like kind of a philosophical question yeah i you know i think that the ethical piece of it is also really interesting like how do we behave how would we behave differently if we were living with the expectation that we would still be alive in right. 500 years. I think like, everyone would do a lot less risk-taking because you're not just losing 20 years of life, you're like losing 2,000 years of life. Right. Right. I think that would be interesting from a like a risk calculation perspective. Not just risk, but sacrifice, you yeah. know? I mean, I mean, right now, the thing in the world that we value the most highly, the thing that, that as a society that we esteem the most is when people sacrifice their lives yeah. for others, knowingly sacrifice their, you know, the firefighter runs into a building, the, right. the nurse works in the Ebola ward where 50% of people who work in there die. Like, how does that work in a world where if you don't show up to work that day, you might live another thousand years? Yeah. Is that just gone? Or just magnified even more because like the sacrifice is like orders of magnitude greater now. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, mean it's it, all it, questions. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And, but like, really like if like magical being was like, Hey, you and your current body, you could get a thousand more years. You'd be like, uh, like, I feel like I'd be like, okay, I'll take it. Like I might think about it for like two seconds, but like, yeah, like it's like, it's like an optionality play. Like I know that, if I really don't like living, I could kill myself. Um, but okay, like the, okay. The, the opposite is like not as easy to obtain. Now, what if what if that magical being said that to you and he said, you can live a thousand more years, just so you know, that's not going to happen to anybody else. You will yeah. be the only person from the 21st century that is still alive. Yeah, I, I would take it. And if I really hate it, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> right, like I just like straight up like an optionality bet. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Because if you ask me that question, yeah. my first question to you is, okay, what's what's everyone else going to do? <laughs> like, is that you know, am, am I going to be the if I if I say no and that you know I want to live an, a long, healthy, normal human lifespan and then I want it to end at what feels like a good time? You know, I mean, as yeah. you know, the Stoics would say, you know, a play should end at the right time. Right. It, you know, it it shouldn't go on longer than it needs to. Right. But. If I'm the only one who decides that and suddenly everybody else is living to a thousand and I'm a hundred and I say, oh, see you later, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Then maybe I'll feel like a sucker. <laughs> well, any other last thoughts here? I mean, is this a good time to end? I would love to get a sense of, you know, what else in terms of topics are interesting to you from a reporter perspective or from a book perspective? It sounds like longevity seems to be a recurring theme here. Anything else that that tickles your mind? Oh, gosh. Um I'm always really interested in companies or technologies that feel like they have really far-reaching impacts on society. Like I think that we're obviously living through times that are scary, and I spend a lot of time thinking about climate change more than anything else, and like how as a society we're going to get over this particular hump, which we need to get over. So I'm on the hunt and always thinking about companies that have an answer or a big part of the answer 
like for instance, last year I wrote a story on Memphis meats, which I mean, meat production for human consumption is responsible for a ridiculous part of global warming gases. There's a lot of interesting companies around food science doing that. I mean, right now I'm also really interested in any company doing anything having to do with direct carbon capture. Mm. I just tend to believe that a lot of these answers are going to need to be driven by the profit motive, just because that's the fastest way for anything to scale. You know, not exclusively, but I think that's got to be part of it. So when I hear about a company that's doing something where I say, oh, they could make a ton of money solving one of our biggest global problems, that gets my attention. Okay, so listeners out there with that kind of constraints, email Jeff. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the program. I think it was a fun conversation. Thank you for having yeah. me. This is great.